This episode is brought to you by Vin Italy International Academy, the toughest Italian wine program. 1,000 candidates have produced 262 Italian wine ambassadors to date. Next courses in Hong Kong, Russia, New York, and Verona. Think you make the cut? Apply now at vinitalyinternational.com. Thanks for tuning into my new show, Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. I'm Steve Ray, author of the book, How to Get U.S. Market Ready. And in my previous podcast, I shared some of the lessons I've learned from 30 years in the wine and spirits business, helping brands enter and grow in the U.S. market. This series will be dedicated to the personalities who have been working in the Italian wine sector in the U.S., their experiences, challenges, and personal stories. I'll uncover the roads that they walked, shedding light on current trends, business strategies, and their unique brands. So, thanks for listening in, and let's get to the interview. Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. My guest this week is Leah Tolaini, and uh, the interesting thing, I've, I've had a connection to Leah for about 15 or 20 years, only neither she nor I knew about it, which was kind of fun, uh, in, in a couple of ways. So, uh, Leah, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. I wouldn't go as far as honor, but okay. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about Banville Wine Merchants and Banville and Jones and the winery in Italy. Kind of a brief background of how, how you got here and why we're having this conversation. Okay, brief. That That's a challenge, but I will do my best. The story starts with my father, Pierluigi Tellini, who uh, was born in Tuscany. He immigrated to Canada in 1956, and the plan was to come to Canada, work for a few years, go back, do what his father did, which was have a farm, make some wine. Uh, he always maintained that his father made bad wine because they used to literally squish it with their feet, of course, back in the day. So once he got to Canada, he ended up working hard, created a trucking company that actually became uh, the largest privately owned trucking company in Canada. So he worked very hard. And then at 62, decided that it was time to go back and fulfill his dream of making a great wine. So he went to Castelnuovo Verdenga, a region that uh, he always had his eye on, and bought 25 hectares in Castanova Veradenga and started his project. You know, I think like everybody maybe that's not in the wine business at the beginning, starting it at 62 in hindsight was probably something that uh, he didn't realize it was going to take as long as it has to actually build a brand and and, and uh, move forward. Uh, the first few years, of course, planting vines and all of that is a, is time consuming. But he he did it. Unfortunately, passed away in 2019. But we are full full force ahead. I have my son, who's my youngest son, who is there uh, taking care of things for me this year at the winery. He's helping out. I'm excited about having my youngest son in the business. And in 2002, when my father realized that we needed to sell the wine that he was so happily making, uh, he went to the U.S. and he had interviewed several importers and came back very disgruntled and upset that nobody was as passionate as he was about this project. So nothing's changed. <laughs> Imagine nowadays, back then. So, you know, in true Pierluigi style, he saw the obstacle and the solution was start our own import company. And I had been hanging around, probably bothering him more than he needed. I had started in the wine business in Canada with a private wine store with my sister. I worked with my sister for maybe, I don't know, 
a year and realized that I didn't want to be in retail in Canada. Uh, so I was helping my dad out in Italy and this opportunity presented itself. It was perfect. It was a make work project for me, solved a, a problem for Tulane. And we started what was Bamble and Jones at the beginning, which today is Bamble Wine Merchants in Boston in 2004. And so now fast forward to 2022, give us a sense of the size of the company, what markets you're in, and a number of products, uh, maybe cases that you sell. Okay, so that's all a very good question. We are a national importer. We moved in 2005 to New York. We have, I'm going to say about 80 wineries that we import. We now are mostly Italian for the most part, but we do, we have expanded into Burgundy, uh, the rest of France, a few wineries from Germany. We have about 50 employees nationally, and of which 20 of those are on the street in New York. We have... A wholesale company in New York, New Jersey now, as well as a wholesale company in D.C. and Virginia, and one in Oregon as well. So we've expanded from national importing to being wholesaler in a few markets. So things have gone well. We've been growing rapidly. Well, good. One other point of contact I had alluded to earlier is uh, your office in New York is on uh, East 38th Street. And my first job in New York was for a PR agency on East 38th Street, literally right across the street from where your office is. So small world. I don't know. That means something to me, probably nobody who's listening to this show. But let's go back to Banville Wine Merchants and tell us what the mission of the company is. You know, what it is that kind of defines you. I've heard the Banville name around a lot. I've known some people who worked there. And it's always kind of struck me as being kind of a breed apart. Maybe you can comment on that. Well, thank you. You know, I think when you're a producer and you come to market as a producer, you approach things differently. We feel very much, we feel very strongly about building brands for wineries, for, you know, trying to concentrate on on-premise, higher-end accounts, building the image, working with journalists, critics, etc., and building a brand. It's a little slower process. But I believe with patience, you know, it can't be about volume at first, which is a hard conversation for Italians because, you know, it's usually starts off with we've got all this wine and we want to sell it tomorrow, which is, in my opinion, if you want to build a brand, it needs to be done in a more strategic way. And that's what we, we do for our suppliers. So the suppliers we do have are people that appreciate, you know, brand building, starts off with lower volume key placements and then you know telling the story making sure that all of our customers know the story of the wineries all of our wineries have a sense of place which i think is very important especially nowadays and just communicating that so you touched on a couple of issues there which i think are kind of interesting one of them is when you say a, a, a sense of place you know there's there's a lot of use and misuse and abuse of the word terroir in, in the wine world as we know but i think it's it's more a function of a sense of place not necessarily the soil specifically and literally, but everything that goes into how they make wine and you know where the aspect ratio of the winery is, where the winds come from, and all that kind of stuff. But it's also a matter of the philosophy of the people behind the winery and what they do. That's a big part of it. So I try and actually not use the, the word terroir, but the idea of sense of place. So talk about some of the other, you've got the core winery itself, which is Tallini. And what are some of the other major brands that you're, you're carrying? And what, what do you think kind of defines them or maybe ties them 
together? Okay, well, you know, I, I think I would have to start with the four brands that at the beginning when we started and I told them my plan, they came on board and it's been full force since then. Uh, Cantina Terlano is one of them. And I think Terlano, if I think back to 2004, was a winery that wasn't well-known. It was sold mostly in Italy. We can't get enough wine now. Uh, Cantina Terlano is definitely not by my many journalists have said top white wine producer from Italy. And that, you know, has, we built the brand over a long period of time. We started with, started very slowly. And, and now today, you know, they are, uh, I think, definitely scrambling to make more wine for the whole world. They've done an amazing job. And it's a winery that's been there since 1896. So it's not uh, a new winery by any stretch of the imagination. And then there's uh, Farina in Vapolicella, a historic family, one of the originals. And Claudio is like a brother to me. Um, you know, we have been working together, like I said, since 2004. Started off slowly and now, you know, they're enjoying some great volumes in the United States, I think. You know, we're up to over 20,000 cases, which is uh, substantial. And, you know, we're at a point, I believe, at Banville where we're just, I feel like we're just getting started. We've put a lot of blood, sweat and tears into getting to this point, And it has been almost 20 years. But uh, now I feel like we've expanded to the point that we... I, I would add that I think that, that I found that to be true, just from the mentions that, that I've heard about the company and the, the esteem that you're held by um, other people in the industry. So uh, do the wines, when I'm talking about, you know, how do they kind of hang together? Is it because of region? Is it because of style? Is it because of the structure of the company being a, a state, a family-owned, state produced? Is it the price? Kind of where... You know, I think it's all of that. I think that it's definitely about the people. And you're right, when you say a sense of place it's definitely about the people the story uh the history you know you can talk about terroir but when you talk about something like cantina terlano which is a um cooperative but it has 80 members that are small families that make up this cooperative so you know i believe that still for the quality for all of the wineries that we represent the quality and the price point is fair there's great quality it over delivers for the price point and that's what we try to do so that's one common theme. I think the other is that they genuinely appreciate the come to the market and they appreciate being here and know how complicated this market is and approach it with, um, you know, they're humble and, and just happy to be present in the U.S. So is that the only um, Cantina Sociale um, or uh, co-op that, that, that you're working with? Or? I actually have Cantina Copertino, who is also one that has been with me since the beginning. And, you know, Southern Italy, Puglia, amazing people. And we have one wine from them, which... Copertino, if you haven't tasted it, I highly recommend it's the old world wine that's, you know, $14.99, I think on the shelf, it hasn't changed price. It's always, I think we're selling now probably the 2016, uh, an amazing wine, but price point is incredible for the quality. So skipping ahead and some of the things that we were going to talk about, I I, I use the word, or it's, it's, the, the word is incoming the, for the plethora of wineries who are just clamoring to get into the U.S. market. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote my book. It's also one of the reasons why we're doing this podcast is to help wineries who um, and spirit producers who want to come to the U.S. markets not make the same mistakes that others have made before them again for the first time. And it seems like people are bound and determined to do that. So you've started from the very beginning, probably made a lot of those mistakes, I would imagine, in the beginning. But now you see it over and over again. How open are you to new wineries? How are they reaching out to you? And what would you tell or what do you tell 
wineries who are not prepared for the U.S. market, but think they are because I make a really great wine. Yes, I think that that is certainly, you know, I there's a lot of good wine out there. There's a lot of good wine and it comes down eventually to the people. You know, it's hard to give advice because there is so much wine in the market. You have to have a plan ready. You know, why are you unique? Why would consumers in the U.S. want your wines? Are you aware of the pricing of your competitors in the market and what that means to your ex-seller price? Uh, I think the biggest thing is people think that we need them. And unfortunately, you know, nobody needs any wine in the United States. So you need to have a story for sure. The wines need to be great and they need to over deliver for the price point, which is always the hardest uh, obstacle to overcome because it is a very competitive market. So, you know, if people want to come and and they think it's going to be their uh, biggest selling market and their most profitable, it's usually not. The U.S., in my experience, has always been 20 to 30 percent less at seller price just to compete with everybody else. So you have to be prepared for that. And I get lots of emails from people, but nobody ever follows up with a phone call. Why is that? Isn't that crazy? I, I, I see that it's the same thing. Somebody will do a mass email. Well, why go through the effort if you're not going to do the follow-up? Or then it's just like throwing, pardon the pun, spaghetti at a wall and hoping something sticks. And generally speaking, it won't. It's kind of like going to a trade fair and looking at your cell phone all day without making eye contact with people who are walking by. Back to your company. So your focus, I think, or my my take on it is has been more on premise than off premise. What impact has COVID had on you? I mean, what what is your perspective on uh, the restaurant business, particularly in New York, and and more specifically the Italian restaurant business, particularly in New York? And and then second question is, where's it going? Twenty was a brutal year. You know, we were heavily on premise. It taught us. You know, I think the biggest word that I heard repeated so often in 2020 was pivot. We were able to pivot a bit, and um, we also had good, good or bad, but it ended up being a good thing. We had ordered a lot of wine at the end of 2019 in preparation for what might have been the tariffs, so we invested in a lot of inventory of our bigger movers. So we had good inventory, and we were able to pick up some retail business, but it, it definitely taught us to not put all our eggs in one basket. So I think, you know, we used to be 80% on-premise. I'm going to say now we're 65%. Now, is that a, a decline in on-premise or is that a decline in on-premise and an increase in off-premise? I think it's an increase in off-premise, mostly. And, you know, we've been trying to be as supportive as we can to our restaurant customers through all of this who have, you know, suffered incredibly with as whatever we can do uh, to help out. But I think it's coming back. I think, you know, I general feeling I get that people in general are done. You know, we've got the vaccines, hopefully. Yes, everybody feels that way, but but we're not, unfortunately. Okay, well, another issue that came up over the past three years, really, has been this whole thing with CBMA and the reduction in federal excise taxes. Presuming you guys have taken advantage of that and understand how it works. Can you give a comment on what impact that has had on the overall Italian wine business as a whole? Yeah, no, it'll be minimal. I think that, you know, I have an amazing president of the company, Simone Lucchetti, who's been with me for 10 years now. And I know that they've taken care of all that. But I think that, I'm not going to say it doesn't help, but I think you know, when we evaluate a winery, it's still based on the people, the wines, and yes, the pricing for sure is definitely key. One of the questions I hear all the time, usually from, call them uninformed, not ignorant people, is how come everybody else in the industry is making more money on my wine than I am, and I have to own the land, 
or, you know, at least it grow the grapes, suffer the consequences of, uh, you know, weather and drought and all this kind of stuff. How do you answer that question? You've got a smirk on your face. We can see each other. <laughs> My dad said, oh, my goodness, had I known, would I really have bought all this land and, and do everything manually and, and invest so much in, you know, good people and, and doing things the right way? Because, yeah, there's there's a subtle difference, I think, I think for, you know, the general consumer, um, whether it's wine that's bought grapes and, and bottled or if it's actually handpicked and all that, there, there's some some differences. But again, for the general consumer, is there so selling a wine that is hand picked and hand created we'll say comes from vineyards etc has to have more value but i think we're still at the beginning of communicating all of that to people and yeah it's it's a it's a tough conversation so gee i thought you were going to give me the answer <laughs> <laughs> i wish i had it okay well, but but Back to your point about off-premise, your wines have a story behind them. I think that's fundamental to the wines that you bring in. Selling to off-premise is different, and it's different now than it ever was for a whole lot of reasons beyond just the technology and COVID and all the rest of that stuff. Where does brick-and-mortar off-premise fit in uh, the world of Banville wine merchants, and what does that mean in the term in terms of the way the, the wines are sold, and, and more importantly, the way the wines are purchased? Well, I think... When you're talking about on-premise, it's a lot about relationships and off-premise. I think the wines that we have and the way that our companies run is it's very much about the relationships that our salespeople have with their customers. You know, that's what I've seen. That's what counts the most. And it's why it's important for, for us as a company to have great, great salespeople that can talk about wine. I think the old days of just talking about the soccer game and, and you know, who's great at soccer, I think the world... The wine world has been elevated and there's a lot of people that know a lot about wine now. So, you know, having your WSET or having some education is 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 a given now, whether you're a buyer or or whether you're on this side of it. And relationships, I think, have a lot to are the primary. Once you have a great portfolio, the wines are, are wonderful, pricing, everything's a constant, then the next thing is relationships. That really just gets, that's the ante on the table, I think. So what can wineries do or what does an importer, put your importer hat on now, what do you expect wineries to do to help promote their products in the United States? And I guess address the whole question about uh, the, the uh, impression people, uh, some producers have of once I have an importer, they're going to take responsibility for selling my wine. And, you know, then there's this still common fallacy that they're going to come to market five times a year and help us. So that's not helpful. You know, those days are gone. Why not? Explain that. Why not? They think it is, and they've been told that it is, and working the market is, is critical. How has that changed? And what should they be doing? I think that working the market is effective if you come and your importer has some events planned, some luncheons, and you're there for a small period of time. If you're, you know, going to work New York each day with a NC five or six customers a day, I'm not sure anymore that that's a really good use of your time. You know, I, I, I do believe that market visits are important, but I think we need to try to be as efficient with everybody's time as possible. I feel it's something also that, you know, this whole pandemic has, has taught us is 
travel less, be in front of people any way you can, but it doesn't have to be personally. Make sure the wines are there. You have someone to speak to them. It may not be in person. It may be personally, but not in person. Zoom and, and some of the bigger ways of doing tastings. But but back to the point about um, working the market. I mean, a lot of times we used to say working the market and that was equated to doing a work with. And uh, my personal feeling is I don't think work with work anymore. And distributors are not real thrilled with them because they're taking their people off the street away from the, what they should be doing. Salespeople are getting much more efficient in all these electronic marketplaces from 750 and all these other ones. They're no longer just making the route. So what is expected from a salesperson of the winery to help them do their job better? Well, I think it's about being efficient, using the money that they would have spent to come to market and finding different ways to invest. You know, I'm a big proponent of taking uh, groups to Vinidly taking groups to Italy to come see the winery. And that's a big expense. But if you can get, you know, this in Italy, we're taking 25 people to Italy uh, that the wineries are, are sponsoring. You know, I think that that's a great investment. I think every time someone comes to market, the cost involved of their time and all the time that's required from, like you said, the wholesalers and the salespeople in organizing these trips, that People also are adverse to them. I think that there's, oh my God, there's another supplier coming. Whether you're, you know, a buyer, you know, can't see people all day long every day anymore either. So I think we are going to have to just figure out how to be more efficient. And I do believe that Zoom and I do believe that, you know, luncheons, classroom, we have a classroom in Banville. We put a classroom in on purpose because I think having a supplier on Zoom and having the wines there coming tasting, it's just as, it's just as is good. As long as you have the wines and you have the presentation, whether the guy's actually there physically or not, yeah, yeah, sure. It, it makes a bit of a difference, but I'm all for trying to maximize, you know, an investment in the market in different ways than them traveling to the market. So I've seen that with, with PR agencies and stuff, you know, where we used to get invites to travel and you might be within a group, you know, small group from six to eight or 12 to 15, or sometimes even 15 to 25, multiple buses, you know, you're limited on how many people it's expensive to do that. With a lot of the Zoom tastings, and especially, you know, putting them in smaller bottles, who would have ever thought we would much less be allowed to do that, much less do it. And you can now reach 400 people where you might have reached 10, 20, maybe 40 if you're really pushing it. So it becomes a lot more efficient both for everybody's time because it's an hour on the on, on Zoom call, two hours, whatever you're doing, you still have the engagement with everybody else. But at the same time, it loses what you just described. And I know this as well as anybody else. When you go and you're at that winery and you wake up in the morning, the sun is shining and you hear, you hear the roosters crowing and the birds chirping and all of this other stuff going on, you understand that winery better than you ever could from reading about it or even seeing pictures. How, you know, so, so the way I used to phrase it is, look, I can't bring everybody to the winery. How do I bring the winery to them? So Zoom is one way of doing it. What other things have you done that you think are helping you solve that problem? Yeah, no, I absolutely especially the last year having doing the zoom calls and having, you know, our division manager in Chicago with five customers and having, you know, all nine division managers and the sales team in New York with customers. And you can reach a few hundred people, you know, the wines are sent out and I think it's good. The other, you know, having an Italian winery, I have noticed there are more people a in Italy doing hospitality from a winery point of view, you know, having uh, a tasting room, which is something 10 years ago, 
nobody did, or very few did. But now I do see, even at Tulane, we have so many people coming, even during COVID, that are, you know, in the wine business. And they, you know, maybe in London or maybe whatever, and they drove to Italy and they're just stopping and seeing all these wineries, which... I think that's the other side of this is people want to learn more. And if you're in this industry, you know, you get on the road and you also try to uh, learn as much as you can. Right. So that's something that I didn't see before the last 10 years, last five years. I've seen a lot of people show up at the winery who, you know, we're open. We have a tasting room. We do this. And I've seen a lot of people phone book come and uh, more than ever before, which is Great. So the to compare and contrast, you know, one of the things that is legal for American wineries, domestic wineries to do that is illegal or not possible for imported wines is to sell wine directly to consumers. So a lot of people I talk to say, well, you know, the three-tier system is a problem. I want to find a way around it and all that. Well, there isn't a way around it, but they're upset that, you know, American wineries have this dispensation they could sell directly. We're approximating that in a lot of different ways with all these different e-commerce solutions, whether it's uh, third-party facilitators or other direct type things, either direct from, if not from a winery to a consumer, but from a retailer to the consumer. One of the biggest assets the wineries have that I see most of them fail to take advantage of is the people who have come to their winery and to leverage the, those people for just that reason and ask them to do something for you. And they probably would be more willing to do it for you, but nobody really asks them. Can you talk about that and how social, what role social media might play in that and, and so forth? Yeah, when people come to our winery, we ask them to fill out a form and we keep their email and we let them know from the you know, American side or Canada or wherever they are when we're releasing a new wine and we try to include the wholesaler distributor. You know, I think we have like 300 emails from people just visiting Tulane that are fans that actually they buy the wine when we when we write them an email. I think, you know, once they've been there and they've seen it and they feel like they're part of it, that you can keep that connection. But yeah, we absolutely do. The next part, direct to consumer, I was you know, have a long conversation yesterday with the president of our company, with Simone and a few other people. And I want to figure out how, yeah, how can we fulfill the person that visited Tulane or whichever winery it is and get them their wine? Because it's a complicated thing. Yeah. Just as a point of reference on that one, commenting on some of the other suppliers and customers that I work with, it's not just the people who have come, it's the people in their network to make them evangelists for you. So all those other people are never going to, you know, most of them are never going to be able to come to the winery. But that doesn't mean they can't feel that they've almost been there by being one you know, degree separated from somebody that does. So how do you do that? You know, the answer I think commonly is social media. It's also leveraging things like Drizzly and City Hive and some of these other things. Uh, my argument to people is, look, you know, we're no longer a demographically driven marketplace. In fact, we never were. The only reason why we looked at geography and household income was because it was a way to aggregate people. Well, really, what you want to do is segregate them and, and have them self-identify as being interested in a subject. So if they're interested in your particular region or your particular style of wine or whatever it happens to be, they could live anywhere. It doesn't really matter. And now the tools are out there to be able to deliver to somebody you know, in Kansas, who may be a wine person, but you would never get a salesperson out. Theoretically, great. What are you going to do about it? 
I know I'm putting you on the spot here. <laughs> Very valid question. And I ironically have a friend who a few people that work at Shopify was talking to them. Um, it's something that I, I definitely need to figure out. And I feel like I'm the last one to, to figure this out, by the way. I'm sure that, you know, direct to consumer is something that you see everywhere. So I'm trying to figure it out. I do feel like all of a sudden I'm the old person that doesn't understand technology, but I'm, I'm, it's it's number one on our list to try to figure out. Don't feel insulted by that, but that's an excuse. You're never too old. Technology is that not that complicated. And I think the flip side of it is the deeper understanding you have of who the people are who are buying your wines, why they're buying your wines, how they are sharing the wines with others is the messaging that has to go out. And the question is, how do I find like-minded people? And if you can define it a little bit more tightly like that, it doesn't seem so impossible to achieve. We're not in the wine industry trying to replicate what Facebook or somebody else had done and become, you know, listen, if you wanted to become a hundred millionaire, you wouldn't have gotten into the wine business. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> I guess your dad found that out a little bit late. But that doesn't mean we in this industry can't use some of the same tools and technology that's out there to get people who are interested. One of the simplest ways, and I don't mean to get into a lecture here, although I do tend to lecture, is um, the use of hashtags. You know, what what is it about the people who have been to your winery that brings them together in common? Maybe it's people who have been to Vin Italy making this up, or, you know, Trey Bicchieri, you know, Campero Rosso, or something like that. But those people who are interested in that and are visiting the hashtags would be that much more interested in yours for the Trey Bicchieri le- uh, message as opposed to Wine Spectator 93, something like that. Which brings up the, the last question, then we'll get into the takeaway. And that, that question is, what's the role of scores and what do you think about that? Well, you know what, I do think they're important. I think that... You know, people, the general public does read Wine Spectator, does three bikini means something. I think it becomes more important also to now that there's more and more wineries trying to access the market, you know, having a third person validate that your wine is good helps. It even helps, you know, an importer like me. It's important. It is important. And I, you know, work hard with our suppliers, because I think it is, you know, they're all good. They're great wines. So, you know, at the beginning it was harder. Now, you know, they're more well-known and they do get great reviews. So it's easier, but at the beginning, yeah, it's not easy if you're an unknown winery and you want to get a journalist's attention, you know, it's not easy for sure. Well, I'd argue that point. And what I tell people when, when I talk to them is, look, you know, I, I publish on my uh, website on the first listing in my blog, if you go to bevologyinc.com, a list of all of the uh, evaluation and rating and review things, and which ones will work with wines that are not currently imported to the U.S. And the reason that's important is because the first question I always hear from anybody I talk to is, do you have scores? And there's only one answer to that question, and it's yes, because the answer is no, the conversation just ended. So that's something that you can do from Italy. You can, you know, there's lots of competitions that you can enter from Italy, or if you have some people in the U.S. that can help facilitate it for you, but get a score. So at least you get past the first question, which is really stated to see whether you, you, you've you even taken the first step in the right direction, which is to have a score. I don't mean to, to berate you or anybody else about that, but it's one of the simplest things that a winery can do, along with... With, and I've talked about this before, not only with you, but on previous podcasts, is the importance of optimizing how your brand appears online. That is something that's in the winery's control, does not require a great deal of technical expertise, and is their responsibility. So if you want to do something, don't get on a plane and fly to New York and figure that someone's going to 
roll out the red carpet. Optimize your your product online. I'll get off my soapbox. Question for you is, of all the things that we talked about, we touched on a lot of things here. What is the big takeaway that someone who's listening to this conversation was with you're now 20 some odd years of experience or almost 20 years of experience in, in the business? You can share with somebody that can benefit them so that they don't have to work so hard or make the same mistakes. Yeah. I mean, that's a really good question. I think from a, um, you know, general consumer point of view, I think that there's so much wine out there that, yeah, doing your homework is, and and digging deep and finding, you know, the hidden gems, if you will. As a winery, uh, like you said, you know what, I think that also your colleagues in Italy are important, an important resource you know, getting scores, getting your colleagues to have you have a conversation with someone, someone that's already in the market can help you understand the market better. You know, I think that that's key. I always listen to if one of my suppliers brings me a winery that, uh, you know, I'll have the conversation. And if you send an email, call, follow up, like that's number one, at least if you have the person on the phone, you know, you'll always get some kind of answer and it'll be probably send me an email again and we'll talk about it or send me something, but at least, you know, don't just fish. There's a great uh, reference for that. Woody Allen, 90, 90% of success is just showing up. I think if you want to sell your brand in the United States, 90% of success is just following up because it says that, that you're serious. Okay. So I want to say thank you to, uh, Leah Tolini or Tolaini? It's kind of like spaghettini. So Tolaini and then, yeah, Banville. I have a hyphen in your last name. It's okay. Of Banville Wine Merchants, if people want to get a hold of you, uh, do you want to share your email and or social handles? They want to reach out to you? Yeah, Leah. Leah, which is spelled L-I-A at BanvilleWine.com. And yeah, I'm always, the, the office is, you know, the, the it's all online, BanvilleWine.com. There's how to get a hold of all of us there. So, well, a big thank you to Lee. I really enjoyed the conversation and I'm glad we finally had a chance to meet. We've been kind of dancing around one another for 20 years, but never did. So now we have. So that's great. It's great. It's nice to talk to you. And hopefully we'll see you for coffee on 38th Street. I will. And also at Vanitaly. I'm going there, although. Wonderful. So big thank you to, to Leah for being my guest from uh, Banville Wine Merchants. And join us again next week where we'll have another interesting conversation on Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People on the Italian Wine Podcast. This is Steve Ray. See you next week. This is Steve Ray. Thanks again for listening on behalf of the Italian Wine Podcast. I'm Joy Livingston, and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love, and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production, and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests, and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.